Before we look at today's episode, have you subscribed to our paid episodes yet? If no, kindly subscribe if you love the infographics show. I'd like you all to take some few seconds to give us a 5-star rating. Thanks. It's a warm, sunny day in August 1944. Hans Eppinger is sitting in his office jotting down some notes in a well-worn book. He pushes his spectacles further up the bridge of his nose, exhales, and puts down his pen. Just a few feet away are a group of emaciated Romani people. They are subjects, his human guinea pigs. Some of them are already close to death, so dehydrated that they're on all fours licking water that was just used to mop the floor. Suddenly, the door to their hut opens. In walks Eppinger. Pointing with his finger, he says, you, you, and you. Come with me. They won't be seen again. That that was the seawater torture experiment we just talked about, and as you'll see today, it was just one of many infinitely appalling experiments that happened in those camps. Number 5. Thirst Let's finish that story we just started. Eppinger was an Austrian physicist whose name, among many others, is written in the Annals of Human Depravity. He was employed by the Nazis during the Second World War to conduct odious experiments on human beings at the Dachau concentration camp. Eppinger used mainly Romani people, a nomadic group sometimes referred to as gypsies, a term they don't like. Back in the war, about 90 of them were chosen for the water experiments. These weren't exactly technical. The Nazis wanted to know what would happen if you deprived someone of food and drinking water and they had to survive on seawater. How long would it take to die? What would happen during the passage of death? In the war, this could happen to one of their pilots. We know the answer thanks to a survivor of those camps named Joseph Schulfing. He watched the experiments with his own eyes, saying later the victims were so desperate they licked the floor and sucked on damp rags. The outcome was the people usually died. Prudence demanded that Schulfing kept his mouth shut about this with him not even showing sympathy to the victims when any German soldiers were around. He also pretended not to see anything. He later noted that he'd seen another worker in the camp take too much interest in an experiment and for that, he was sent straight to the gas chamber. The experiment was related to how humans deal with extreme low pressure. Number 4. The Doctor of Death The low pressure experiments were conducted by a man often called a monster. This was Sigmund Rascher, an SS Doctor of Death, whose depravity seemed to know no limits. He'd been a pilot in the Luftwaffe and that made him think about the effect of high altitude on pilots. The problem was, as he wrote in a letter to Nazi SS boss Heinrich Himmler, it wasn't exactly easy to get people to sign up for experiments. He wrote that he'd already tried using monkeys, but that didn't go down too well. He needed humans, he told Himmler, stating that the experiments would likely end their life. No problem, replied Himmler. Humans he got, and during the spring and summer of 1942, he rounded up a bunch of prisoners at Dachau camp. One by one, he told them to enter a pressure chamber. Once they were in, Rasher played around with the pressure, making it so low that it corresponded with being at a very high altitude. He would then quickly change the pressure in an attempt to see what it might be like for a German pilot parachuting from a plane without any oxygen. According to reports, the people used in these experiments were mostly Poles and Russians. Some of them died and some of them survived. When Rasher told Himmler about this, the boss said if they survive, then spare them the gas chamber. Just give them life in prison. Rasher then quickly wrote back, reminding Himmler who these people were. Some of those letters survived the war. Here's part of one Rasher wrote to Himmler in April 1942. Only continuous experiments at altitudes higher than 10.5 kilometers result in death. These experiments showed that breathing stopped after about 30 minutes, while in two cases the electrocardiographically charted action of the heart continued for another 20 minutes. He said after four minutes the people started to wiggle and move their head around. A minute later they would cramp up in various parts of their body. Then their breathing would become rapid, and at around 10 minutes they lost consciousness. At around the 30 minute mark the subjects would only be taking about three slow breaths per minute. Death came soon after. He wrote this in May of the same year. After relative recuperation from such a parachute descending test, 
that had taken place. However, before regaining consciousness, some experimental subjects were kept underwater until they died. You can see just how little concern these people had for human life, but it gets even worse. Rasher, likely following the orders of Luftwaffe Chief Surgeon Eric Hipke, experimented on people just to see how cold you could make them. These were called the freezing experiments. They wanted to know what would happen if a German pilot survived his fall from the sky and landed in the freezing cold ocean. How best to warm someone up who had hypothermia? In a world not eclipsed by evil, you couldn't conduct such an experiment on humans. Rasher used people from the Dachau camp, this time putting prisoners in a tank of freezing cold water for up to three hours. Others he made stay outside in the cold weather while they were naked. Throughout their ordeal, they were monitored to see the effects of cold on the human body. One experiment was called warming up after freezing to the danger point. In a letter shown at the Nuremberg trials, Himmler gives his approval of the warming up experiments, signing off, kind greetings, Heil Hitler. The victims were almost frozen to death and then they were warmed up. But we're not talking about being given a blanket and a steaming cup of tea. They were immersed in hot water, sometimes boiling water. This was of course a massive shock to the system and some people subsequently died. Warming up by water was not a good way to treat people suffering from hypothermia was the conclusion. So Himmler told Rasher to go and ask fishermen who worked in the cold North Sea what they would do. Himmler reportedly said that a fisherwoman could take her half-frozen husband into bed and revive him in that manner. After that, Romani people were frozen half to death and then placed in between two warm Romani women. They had to be naked, of course. The victims were monitored throughout, and if they died, autopsies were performed. You can see the actual reports. They state if a person is immersed in water at 5 degrees Celsius, it can usually be tolerated for an hour. When they raise the temperature to 15, the victim could tolerate the water for 4 to 5 hours. The reports also state that even after the people were taken out of the water, their temperature would continue to drop. They often died soon after, even when revival attempts were made. We now know about such things as rewarming shock and the after-drop effect, and we know you should not warm a hypothermic person up using warm water, but back then the science wasn't up to speed. The reports state that people whose body temperatures were reduced to 25 degrees Celsius and then warmed up to 28 degrees Celsius died. No number was written down as to how many died. One report just said they all died. They usually died anywhere between 53 and 106 minutes of cooling, but then those were the water experiments only. During the trials, two people who said they witnessed these experiments said 80 to 90 percent died. They said they saw only two people actually get through the experiment, but noted that they became mental cases as a result. Finally, the same doctor conducted what was called the blood coagulation experiments. Basically, the Nazis wanted to know if you took a pill made from beet and apple pectin, would the blood clot after being shot, therefore possibly saving the life of a soldier. Again, in a normal world, you could never conduct this experiment on humans, but the Nazis simply used victims of the camps. They shot them and gave them the drug. What's even worse is sometimes they amputated people's limbs. This was an attempt to try and duplicate a person losing a limb on the battlefield due to a bomb. They made it as real as possible, removing limbs sometimes without giving the victim any kind of anesthetic. After that, they got the blood clotting drug. In his notes, Rasher wrote, the tests of this medicine showed no failures under most varied circumstances. This got back to Hitler himself, who was impressed with the experiment. As for what happened to the dead, it was later revealed that Rasher had a thing for human skin, using it to make handbags, gloves, slippers, saddles, pants, and other items. He sometimes sold these things to his colleagues, according to the book Medicine, Ethics, and the Third Reich. Since those reports were released to the world, scientists have said that Rasher lied in them, and there were many contradictions and inaccuracies. The Nazis also realized he'd lied at times. Rasher was arrested in 1944 on the order of Himmler after it was revealed he'd kidnapped three children. He was accused of scientific fraud and even murdering his assistant. He ended up being a prisoner himself at Dachau, and then in 1945 he was executed by firing squad. Okay, now for something very short but extremely terrifying. Number 3. Head Injury This account of one single experiment was told by a Holocaust survivor named Martin Small, who wrote that one day he and another prisoner were working at the house of a Nazi doctor named Dr. Wickman. He said the doctor took off somewhere, so he did some looking around 
around and at one point found himself looking into a locked room by a window outside the house. In his own words, he said, I placed my hands on the ledge and put my face to the window. I was not prepared for what was inside and at first sight, I could not find words to interpret what I was looking at. I put my hand to my mouth as if trying to muffle my own outburst. I nearly vomited. Sixty years later, I still cannot erase the vivid, terrible image. Okay, so what was he looking at? He described seeing a young boy strapped to a chair. Above him was a mechanized hammer that struck the boy over the head every few seconds. It wasn't hard enough to break the skull, but you can only imagine what it must have felt like after, say, an hour, a day, two days, more. The guy said the boy was already driven mad. Not dead, but not there either. He said this same doctor had actually saved him from being killed by another Nazi, so he was surprised he was torturing a little boy in the worst kind of way. I dropped to my knees in sickness and disgust, and I trembled, he wrote. It's hard to imagine a human doing that to another human, but of course you're about to hear something even worse. Sorry, that's just the way it's going to be with this show. Number 2. Surgery Surgery It's an important thing during a time when many men are being shot to pieces on the battlefield. The best surgeons practice, of course, but who do you practice on besides victims on your own side? The answer for the Nazis was prisoners at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Without any anesthesia at all, people had their bones removed, their nerves pulled out, their muscles plundered, all in the name of medical experimentation. The Nazis had two reasons for this. Firstly, they wanted to know if you remove something, how does it regenerate, if at all? Secondly, they were interested in seeing how transplants worked. They didn't seem to give a damn about making people disabled and putting them through what must have been the worst kind of pain. Just imagine being tied down and having parts of you removed. That happened to a woman two times and she survived to tell the story. Her name was Jadwiga Kaminska and she said she was a young girl and she was sent into surgery and they did something to her that led to crippling pain. She didn't exactly know what they did but said after she was grievously injured and suffered from infections. It's hard to say how many people were mutilated like this but research shows there was a lot of victims trying to claim compensation after the war. There were photos too, such as the one of a Polish woman named Bogowila Babinska-Droboska. She had a bit of her leg removed. The National Institutes of Health wrote that in all there were 27,759 known victims, made up of many nationalities, with about twice as many male victims as female victims. The people suffered all manner of injuries and many died. Reports state that some of the victims were called rabbits by the Nazis given the nature of the experiments. Some were cut deeply so it could be seen how quickly infections ensued. Sometimes the Nazis would rub dirt, cloth fibers, wood shavings, and even broken glass into the open wound. This was to accelerate the speed of infection. The victims were then given experimental drugs to see if the infection could be dealt with. The NIH wrote, They operated on Barbara Petersik five times in 1942 alone, causing left lower limb paralysis. At 16 years of age, she was the youngest of the rabbits. In another account, Nazi professor Gebhardt used 24 Polish women for an experiment. He wanted to see what would happen if you cut the blood flow off in a limb, and so he just tied something really tight around a part of their limb. The result, of course, was the area became necrotic. Experimental drugs were subsequently administered to the women. Nazi reports that were unearthed said in one experiment 13 people died from gangrene while six others were taken out and shot so they could never tell anyone about what had happened to them. There's data to back all this up, so as unbelievable as it sounds, it happened. There are names and photographs of survivors. Another NIH report stated the surviving victims were permanently disabled both physically and psychologically. Four of the surviving Polish women, Maria Broel Plater, Jadwiga Gido, Warasława Karolewska, and Maria Kuszmerczuk testified during the doctor's trial and exhibited the scars on their legs. Then there was Dr. Ludwig Stumpfeger. He was partly responsible for bone graft experiments using the tibias of victims. In some cases, the tibia would be harvested and then transplanted to another victim who also had their tibia removed. During those same experiments, they did something called myomectomy. That's removing the skeletal muscle, and as you know, nerves were also taken out. Again, there are names and survivors and photographs. One such person was named Vladislava Karoleska. She went through six separate surgeries, each involving the removal of bone, muscles, and nerves.
nerves. She testified later, describing how people were slaughtered and how she was experimented on. This is what she said happened to her after she passed out from pain. I regained my consciousness in the morning, and then I noticed that my leg was in a cast from the ankle up to the knee, and I felt a very strong pain in this leg and the high temperature. I noticed also that my leg was swollen from the toes up to the groin. The pain was increasing and the temperature too, and the next day I noticed some liquid was flowing from my leg. One day, she and other rabbits stood in line to be executed. A German officer asked her, why do you stand so in line as if you were to be executed? She replied, the operations are worse for us than executions, and we would prefer to be executed rather than to be operated on again. She explained in her testimony what had happened after the final operation. I stayed in the hospital six months. I was in bed. I could not stretch my legs. I could not move them. I could not walk either. A doctor named Fisher later admitted to taking off entire limbs, saying he was just following orders. He wrote of one limb removal. I was ordered to go to Ravensbrück and perform the operation of removal on that evening. I asked doctors Gebhardt and Schultz to describe exactly the technique which they wished me to follow. In a sworn affidavit, a Czech doctor named Dr. Zdenka Nidvidova Niedla wrote, high amputations were performed. For example, even whole arms with shoulder blades or legs were amputated. These operations were performed mostly on insane women who were immediately killed after the operation by a quick injection of Evipan. That's a kind of barbiturate that can kill in high doses. She said 11 people died or were killed during these operations, and she also stated that pain relievers weren't administered to the victims. We know this because she wrote, after operations, no one except SS nurses were admitted to the persons operated on. Whole nights they lay without any assistance, and it was not permitted to administer sedatives even against the most intensive post-operational pains. Okay, so this is a really depressing show, but you all know the expression that history is doomed to repeat itself if we don't study it. We need to know the facts. You need to know that the Nazis purposely gave people malaria. They tested mustard gas on prisoners. They gave tetanus to others, and they conducted many awful experiments to see how people could be sterilized. They even poisoned people to the point of death or actual death, and they burned people to see how bomb blasts work out for victims. But even after hearing all that, there's one thing that sticks out. Number 1. Twins These were called the twin experiments. The Nazis were obsessed with twins, and so they captured about 1,500 sets and imprisoned them at Auschwitz. About 200 of them survived, so that's how we know what happened. They separated them so they could monitor what happened to each twin without them knowing the same was happening to their sibling. Again, they did ad hoc surgeries on them, even trying to change their eye color using dyes. This was mostly the work of doctors Josef Mengele and Karen Magnussen. The latter made it clear how she thought, writing this in 1943. This war is not just about the preservation of the German people, but it's about the question which races and people should live on in the future on European soil. The Jew who enjoys life as a host in our country is our enemy, even if he does not actively engage with weapons in this fight. But why change the eye color, which was very painful by the way? The reason was just to see if they could. One survivor said Mengele looked at her mother and saw what he said were perfect Aryan features and blue eyes, but her eyes were brown, which didn't impress the doctor. His thoughts? Try and change them. Survivor Jonah Locks said she saw Mengele remove one twin's organs without giving him any anesthetic. Others said he sometimes just killed twins by giving them injections to the heart. Mengele was obsessed with what he might have called pure blood, and so he was obsessed with twins and genetic inheritance. After all, the Nazis wanted to create a super race, partly and wrongly based on Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of the Superman. He even forced people to have sex to see what the child might look like if indeed one was born as a result of the forced encounter. A survivor later said he did this with a male dwarf and a Romani woman. Listen to this from a Jewish doctor who was a prisoner himself but had to work with Mengele. His name was Miklos Niesli. He said he worked on many experiments. Sometimes they just kill twins at the same time just to see if the autopsy revealed they were similar on the inside. He wrote, in Auschwitz camp, there are several hundred pairs of twins and their deaths in turn present several hundred opportunities. One twin who survived was Ava Moses Kor. She wrote that Mengele tried to make boys into girls and vice versa. In her own words, she said, he wanted to discover a way to change girls into 
into boys and boys into girls. Many of these details I learned 40 years later, such as the twin teenage boys who had some of their private parts cut off in Mengele's quest to see if he could turn them into girls. She also said that when kids died in the camp, the doctor became very angry, but it wasn't because he was concerned for people's welfare. She wrote these deaths meant the loss of valuable guinea pigs for his medical experiments. But perhaps the worst thing, sometimes that sounds like a disgusting horror movie, was his experiment related to sewing people together. Yeah, you heard that right. Joseph Mengele tried to attach twins together in an attempt to make them conjoin. He used Romani children for this. It sounds so outrageous, you could understand people thinking it's not true, but again, there's evidence, although not much in this case. We have at least one piece of evidence, and again, it's from the twin Ava Moses Kaur. We'll let her tell you in her own words what she saw. A set of gypsy twins was brought back from Mengele's lab after they were sewn back to back. Mengele had attempted to create a Siamese twin by connecting blood vessels and organs. The twins screamed day and night until gangrene set in, and after three days, they died. A young girl, Eva, looks up at the doctor. He's furious today, stamping his feet and shouting, which makes many of the youngsters cry. He's angry because two of his kids, his prisoners, died before he had a chance to work on them. He needed all the guinea pigs he could get. Eva has seen things she can hardly comprehend. Soon, she'll witness something that will sear her mind until she's an elderly woman. That is the doctor's attempt to make conjoined twins. Her name was Eva Moses Kaur and she was one of the survivors. A twin herself, she and her sister were experimented on at Auschwitz concentration camp. Two of her other sisters, as well as her parents, died in the gas chamber. The Nazi doctor was Joseph Mengele, a man who would become known as the Angel of Death. We'll tell you a little bit about him before we get to the experiments. As you'll see throughout this video, he was something of a shapeshifter. During his student days, he was into music and the arts. He was studious, he was bright. He also developed increasingly nationalistic beliefs as he got older, in line with traditional values characterized by the the Volkish movement. In short, he was racist. That racism would define his entire life. The bright young chap went on to study medicine, showing a particular interest in human genetics and physical anthropology. In case you didn't know, the latter is related to the development of humans through evolutionary history. You can already see how this man began to embrace the Nazi ideology of a superior race. In 1937, he joined the Nazi party and later became part of the SS, a paramilitary organization which in German was called the Schutzstaffel. He served in the armed forces for a while after after the outbreak of the war, later joining the SS Race and Settlement Main Office. This division was tasked with safeguarding the racial purity of those in the SS. His responsibilities there were to ensure genetic health and also administer genetic health tests. The Nazi party did not want its own procreating with people it deemed impure. Wives and fiancés of SS members were investigated to ensure this didn't happen. Mengele firmly believed in genetic superiority. He embraced the study of eugenics, which if you're not familiar with it, relates to the attempt to create a healthier future generation by condoning selective interbreeding with people who have certain genetic characteristics. The doctor believed he could further his study of genetics by experimenting with humans. All he needed were test subjects, and those he got when he was made chief physician at Auschwitz concentration camp in 1943. When he got there, masses of people had already died in the gas chambers. Around 75% of them were those deemed unfit to work. There were mainly women, children, frail, and the elderly. Part of Megale's job was to select which people went to the gas chamber and which people didn't. The vast majority of the 960,000 Jews that were sent there went to the gas chamber, as did the majority of the Roma and ethnic Poles and the Soviet prisoners of war. Many not immediately slaughtered were forced to work. They were also experimented on along with the children. Part of Mengele's job was treating sick inmates and Nazi personnel, doing what doctors generally do. He was more than just a demented Nazi arch-criminal. One historian wrote, Mengele's outsized reputation as a medical monster is inverse proportion to what is known and understood about what he 
actually did. There's no question that inmates endured horrendous tortures and often died when they were experimented on. They were subjected to deadly air pressure, they were left out in the freezing cold and dangerously heated up, women had their muscles and nerves removed, children had limbs removed, people were deliberately given deadly blood infections, all manner of indescribable things happened to them. This was at the hands of many different people, but it's Mengele's name that has stood the test of time. This is mainly down to his experiments on children and his obsession with twins. To us, he was a beast, but he believed he was riding on the cutting edge of medical science. The camp gave him the opportunity to do what he thought were great things, albeit with the parameters of depraved Nazi ideology. In his own words, after the war, he said he didn't invent the camps, he just worked in them. His son even said he couldn't help anyone. On the platform, for instance, what was he to do when the half-dead and infected people arrived? But get this, his son also said the twins owe their lives to him. He did choose twins for his experiments, which may have saved them from the gas chamber. It's now understood that he founded a kindergarten and played violin for the kids there. That's one reason he was sometimes called uncle by the kids. They couldn't have known about medical experimentation at the beginning. A former inmate doctor later said he could be playful, jumping about to please them. The twin children frequently called him Uncle Peppy. This is what another inmate doctor once said about him. He was capable of being so kind to the children, to have them become fond of him, to bring them sugar, to think of small details in their daily lives and to do things we would genuinely admire. And then, next to that, the crematoria smoke and these children tomorrow or in a half hour, he's going to send them there. Mengele didn't work alone, far from it. When kids' hearts were injected with chloroform or when children were purposefully infected with disease or even when young ones had their eyes injected with dye, he was part of a team, sometimes working under the auspices of Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. It would be a mistake to blame him for all the atrocities committed in the name of medical science, but when it comes to experimenting on twins, that was certainly his very own sphere. But why twins, you might think? No one's exactly sure, but it's thought that Mengele was interested in learning a few things. He believed twins might teach him more about the inheritance of genes. He was also interested in how twins reacted individually to specific experiments. It's thought the overarching reason for the experiments was simply the Nazis' view that there was a superior race. Some people have said Mengele wanted to understand if there was a possibility of giving what the Nazis thought were racially superior couples more of a chance of having superior twins. Around 200 pairs of twins survived from as many as 15,000 pairs. Others died when their hearts were injected with phenol so they could subsequently be dissected. Survivor Jonah Lacks said, Mengele removed organs from people without anesthetic, and if one twin died, the other would be murdered. The reason for that was the doctor wanted to know not only how they compared in life, but what happened to each of their bodies after they died. At one point, according to the testimony of an inmate assistant, he killed 14 twins in one night. The testimony read, he injected the Evipan into her right arm intravenously. After the child had fallen asleep, he felt for the left ventricle of the heart and injected 10 cc's of chloroform. He said the twin twitched and died soon after. All 14 went the same way that night. In another case, Mengele took two gypsy twins aged 7 and studied them. They had problems in their joints, which he said was tuberculosis. The radiologist didn't agree. Enraged, Mengele took the twins into another room. When he returned, he said to the radiologist, you're right, there was nothing. He shot them both and dissected them. Prior to that, the twins arguably had the best life of any prisoner at Auschwitz. Not that that was saying much. Those twins had been favorites of Mengele. As one man later said, they were spoiled in all respects, and they fascinated him considerably. Some kids were able to play soccer, and even most were well-fed compared to the other prisoners in the camp. Some of them got to keep their own clothes as well as the hair on their heads. One twin survivor later said he felt completely elevated, segregated from the hurly-burly of the camp. These reports conflict with others, though. For instance, twins Ephraim and Menashe Reichenberg said they were transported in a packed train. 
and when the train stopped, they heard the call Zwillinga Raus, twins out. They were told to stay in a certain line, and they would stay alive. At the camp, they were stripped, shaved, disinfected, and given prisoner uniforms with the numbers B10506 and B10507. They said there were about 1,000 kids at the time, mostly twins and dwarfs. The boys had noticeably different voices. This piqued the interest of Dr. Mengele. Their necks were injected with an unknown substance in one experiment, which led to swelling, high fever, mutinous, and a state of exhaustion for several days. Menashe died as a result of the experiments in 1946, after he was freed from the camp. Ephraim later moved to Israel after returning to Budapest to discover all his family was dead. He became a bus driver. Life was okay, but because of the experiments he had a continual breathing and swallowing problem, which led him to not being able to talk at all. In later life he told his devastating story through an artificial voice amplifier. All the children were subject cases more than they were humans. Identical twins were always being measured and analyzed. For hours at a time they had to sit through various procedures, including having material inserted into their spines and spinal taps. This is what Jonah Lack said when she saw that it was her first time to be experimented on in Mengele's lab. I was looking at the whole wall of human eyes. A wall of blue eyes, brown eyes, green eyes. Those eyes were staring at me like a collection of butterflies and I fell down on the floor. Mengele was obsessed with inheritance of eye color. Lark said she was given injections in her back, but she never knew why. She and many other twins were also injected with the gangrenous condition Noma, after which making some kids very sick killed them. Eva Moses Kaur said she witnessed young boys who had their sex organs removed. She later said she believed it was Mengele's attempt to change the sex of boys. She also said this, A set of gypsy twins was brought back from Mengele's lab after they were sewn back to back. Mengele had attempted to create a Siamese twin by connecting blood vessels and organs. The twins screamed day and night until gangrene set in, and after three days they died. No one is going to doubt that the twins were horrifically experimented on in those camps, and some of them died, often in agony. But an article published in 2020 by the New York Times asserts that there is as much fact as there is fiction when it comes to Mengele. Here's a snippet from that article. Given his alleged omnipotence, grotesque and untrue accusations, that Mengele had attempted to create Siamese twins by sewing together a pair of twins, or that he had attempted to make boys into girls and vice versa, were circulated. That same newspaper back in 1985 told the story that involved Mengele shooting a mother and a child when the mother refused to be separated from him. Mengele was reportedly so mad he had a change of mind and sent all the people he'd previously chosen and to survive to be sent to the gas chamber. That certainly sounds like someone capable of other horrors. But were some of the stories exaggerated? Here's another account from Eva Moses Kaur, one of the twins who was 19 years old, told of experiments involving a set of teenage boys and teenage girls. Cross transfusions were carried out in attempts to make boys into girls and girls into boys. Some of the boys were castrated. Transfusion reactions were similarly studied in the adolescent twins. In 1992, the US Department of Justice released a lengthy report on Mengele, alleging he had done such terrible things and a lot more we haven't discussed today. The report states, an exchange of blood was repeatedly made between the individual twins of a pair, adding that some twins died as a result. We could find no mention of experiments involving sewing twins together. A survivor and camp warden named Vera Alexander can maybe fill in some gaps. She once said to the doctor, every day Mengele came and every day he brought some toys, sweets, chocolates, and new clothes. She also said she witnessed how Mengele had impregnated one twin with the sperm of another twin. He pampered her and he was there at the birth. Alexander said when he saw only one baby and not twins, he threw the baby in the incinerator and just walked away. Part of Alexander's job was taking care of 50 sets of Romani twins. This is what she said she saw one day about one particular pair of twins. Megala took them away. When they returned, they were in a terrible state. They had been sewn together back to back, like Siamese twins. Their wounds were infected and oozing pus. They screamed day and night. Then their parents, I remember the mother's name was Stella, managed to get some morphine and they killed their children in order to end their suffering. 
There was also this account from Eva Kaur. A set of gypsy twins was brought back from Mengele's lab after they were sewn back to back. Mengele had attempted to create a Siamese twin by connecting blood vessels and organs. She said they screamed day and night until gangrene killed them. These are the only two accounts we can find which talk about Mengele trying to make conjoined twins. The experiments are perhaps the very nadir of what the doctor did. Nonetheless, details about them are very scant. We found more testimony from the 1961 trial of Adolf Eichmann, a man noted as being a significant influence behind the final solution to the Jewish question. In the testimony, Vera Alexander is asked about Mengele and what experiments she saw him conduct. She tells the judge she saw only one. He asks her what that was and she replies, there was a set of twins, gypsies, whom he took away one day from the block where I was. That was the Zigunerlager, the gypsy camp. Some days later, he returned them with veins in their arms and their backs sewn together. The judge then says he doesn't quite understand. Alexander simply says again he sewed them. The judge asks if they were turned into Siamese twins, to which Alexander said he sewed their arms together. They were already full of pus and full of wounds. She said she didn't know what happened to them since she was transferred to the women's camp after that. Since the accounts don't include many details, we're not sure what really happened to those twins behind closed doors. We also can't be sure what Mengele had intended to discover from the experiments. What we are sure about is those experiments were never going to result in conjoined twins that survived any length of time. Mengele, for all his faults, was a trained professional. He must have known that. Mice have been sewn together in modern labs, but even that often leads to the death of the animals after their immune systems went into hyperdrive. The process is called parabiosis, which Mengele would have heard about because it's been around since the 1800s. He also knew the outcome of doing it on humans. It was likely not of any concern to him. He had the expendable human resources at hand to experiment. Mengele managed to escape trial. Unlike many other leading Nazis after the war, despite being a wanted man, he lived out his life in South America. His son Rolf visited him in Sao Paulo in 1977, the first time he'd seen his father in over 20 years. He told Rolf he was unrepentant, stating that he'd never personally hurt anyone and only followed orders. His diary and some of his letters were later found. In one letter he wrote, Brazil is a nice country to live in, despite the mixing of races. But there are many people who, like me, believe and are sympathetic to the Nazi movement and racial ideology. In another he wrote, Weaker humans should not be permitted to reproduce. This is the only way for humankind to exist and sustain itself. In yet more of his writing he claimed, If the inferior morons are not eradicated from society, society will destroy itself. In 1979, he had a stroke in a swimming pool and drowned. His personal history might have been somewhat embellished over time, but more than a hundred people he experimented on testified in 1985 about what they had experienced at Auschwitz. Here's a snippet from one man's testimony, which sounds quite different from how Mengele felt about what he did during the war. Dr. Mengele pulled me out of a queue as we were on the way from the sea logger camp to the gas chamber. I was the only one picked out that day, personally by Mengele and his assistant. They took me to his laboratory where I met other children. They were screaming from pain. I was injected with drugs and chemicals. My body most of the time was connected to tubes which inserted some drugs into my body. Even if his monstrousness has been overemphasized at times, there could be little doubt that he was a sadistic ideologue, foremost a racist, also a narcissist and a murderer, and above all human, all too human. Poland 1939 a school teacher named Władysława Karoleska becomes a courier in the anti-German resistance after the invasion of her country. In February 1941, she's arrested and following interrogation sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. There she's selected to be part of one of the Nazis' medical experiments. She can have no idea what's in store for her. Neither can many of the other women who will share a similar fate. This is a tale of body transplantation just one of the medical horrors prisoners at those camps faced. Let's stick with Karoleska's story for now. She survived and later testified against the Nazis. But before we get to what she said, here's how the medical professionals 
later described such experiments. The criminal experiments consisted in the deliberate cutting out and infection of bones and muscles of the legs with virulent bacteria, the cutting out of nerves, the introducing into the tissues of virulent substances, and the causing of artificial bone fractures. The experiments conducted showed no regard whatsoever for something called asepsis. This means a state in which the human body is free from dangerous microorganisms such as viruses or pathogenic bacteria. As you'll see in this show, some victims died as a result of infection. Others died during the operations, while some suffered major and extensive injuries to their organs of movement. There were also times that the Nazis, having injured the victims so devastatingly, just took them outside and shot them. At the beginning of Karoleska's testimony, she was asked, Witness, were you operated on while you were in Ravensbrück concentration camp? She replied, Yes, I was. Here's what happened. On July 22, 1942, she and around 75 other Polish prisoners were ordered to stand before the camp office. In front of them were several high-ranking Nazi officers and Dr. Fritz Ernst Fischer, a man later imprisoned for conducting medical experiments at the camp. The all-female prisoners were inspected, and then three days later they were summoned to go to the prison hospital. Karoleska said in court, On this day we did not know why we were called before the camp doctors, and on the same day 10 of 25 girls were taken to the hospital, but we did not know why. She said a few of the girls went into the hospital, they were given injections without being told the reason, they were called again, and they didn't return to the hut. Karoleska learned that the women were still in the hospital, their legs now in casts. Then she and some other girls were summoned. This was incredibly frightening. In her own words, she explained why. We were called at a time when usually executions took place, and I was going to be executed because before some girls were shot down. While she was in a hospital bed, a nurse gave her an injection without explaining why. Whatever had been put into her made her vomit, after which she was rushed off to an operating room. There, she said Dr. Shilowski and Rosenthal intravenously injected her with something else, after which she fell unconscious. She woke up only to feel excruciating pain in her leg. Before she could try and understand what was happening, she was unconscious again. When she awoke, she said she was burning up. She felt an intense pain in her leg, and when she looked down, she saw that her leg was in a cast. She said, I noticed also that my leg was swollen from the toes up to the groin. The pain was increasing, and the temperature too, and the next day I noticed that some liquid was flowing from my leg. On the third day, she was moved to another room. Dr. Fisher was waiting for her, dressed in a white gown with rubber gloves on his hands. This time she remained conscious, although the nurse put a sheet over her eyes. She said in court, I had the impression that something must have been cut out of my leg. In the days and weeks that passed, she went back to the hospital on many occasions, each time not knowing what was happening to her. At times she was blindfolded but conscious of the pain the doctors were causing her. She said, Two weeks later we were all taken again to the operating room and put on the operating tables. The bandage was removed and that was the first time I saw my leg. What she saw was a giant incision, so deep she could see bones. She and other girls who'd been experimented on were sent back to their huts. She couldn't walk at this point. The doctors weren't done yet. On another day, she was carried back to the operating room. That day, she saw an ambulance outside, so she thought she was going to be executed. But the doctor operated again, although she'd been administered a drug that knocked her out. She woke up in pain. The symptoms were the same. The leg was swollen and the pus flowed from my leg, she said. The hut she stayed in was now full of women who couldn't walk, who each night cried in pain. At one point, they were told to go back to the operating room, but this time some of them could only hop, which caused more pain. During her testimony, she was asked, Do you remember when you got out of bed and were able to walk? She replied, I stayed in bed several weeks, and then I got up and tried to walk. It still wasn't over, but the girls had had enough. 
Once they were able to stand, they stood in the line that was usually for people headed to the gas chamber. This is what she testified. We went out of line and stood before the ninth block in line. Then Ben's officer said, why do you stand so in line as if you were to be executed? We told her that the operations were worse for us than executions and that we would prefer to be executed rather than to be operated on again. The next time she was operated on, she woke up with both her legs in iron splints and bandages from her toes right up to her groin. She was, of course, one of the fortunate people to make it out of the camp. Her legs were a mess as she showed people who attended her testimony. We'll come back to more victim testimonies, but first, we need to know what the Nazi doctors were doing to Miss Karoleska. In a paper published in the National Institutes of Health, the author said that he spent three years looking through the National Archives in Germany in an effort to try and understand what actually went on in the camp's hospitals. He wrote that one study found that 27,759 people were victims of Nazi medical experiments in all the camps, and 4,364 of them died as a result. For the most part, these experiments were conducted in an effort to bolster the German campaign on the battlefield, in the ocean, and in the skies. We won't go into it today, but as far as the ocean is concerned, sometimes deadly experiments used prisoners to understand better how to treat someone for hypothermia. As for the air, some also deadly experiments featured victims being forced into a special chamber where they experienced changes in air pressure. But it was on the battlefield where most injuries happened. German soldiers routinely lost limbs and had bullets fired into them. They suffered terrible burns and frequently they almost succumbed to their head injuries. These people had to be operated on quickly, sometimes without much time or expertise at hand. Untold number of German soldiers were getting seriously injured, and that's why the army demanded that the medical corps conduct experiments on the prisoners they had in those camps. According to NIH, experiments were carried out to observe bone, muscle, and nerve regeneration and the possibility of bone and limb transplantation from one person to another. Now, you likely have a better understanding of what happened to Miss Karoleska and many of her comrades. Just so you know, Ravensbrück was the biggest women's concentration camp, in total holding something like 40,000 Polish prisoners and 26,000 Jewish prisoners. It's thought about 28,000 of them died in all, from overwork, hunger, disease, beatings, but also medical experiments. Other sources state that there were about 130,000 from various countries, of which 30 to 90,000 died. Women, of course, weren't the only ones experimented on. In the NIH paper, it says 20 men from the Sachsenhausen concentration camp were used and abused. Just to give you an idea of what sometimes happened, we'll talk about them. The Nazis wanted to understand if they could treat an infected wound with a certain drug on the battlefield or if that infection needed to be treated surgically in a field hospital. To understand this, they used guinea pigs, the prisoners. They sliced open their legs and purposefully infected them with bacteria. They then sewed up the wounds and administered the drug. Here's what the actual report said. An incision was made 5 to 8 centimeters in length and 1.5 centimeters in depth on the outside of the lower leg in an area of the peroneus longus. The bacterial cultures were put into dextrose and the resulting mixture was spread into the wound. The wound was then closed. No serious illnesses resulted. Success! But had it not been, those 20 prisoners could have been in serious trouble. Who knows if they survived anyway? The women at the other camp were not known as guinea pigs but as rabbits. They became known as the Rabbits of Ravensbrück and many were victims of transplantation. That wasn't always the case though. The reports state that because success had been achieved at the male camp regarding infections, the Germans upped the ante at the female camp. They rubbed many things into their wounds, hoping to simulate what might happen on the battlefield. Not that it'll mean much to any of you, but the bacteria introduced into the wounds included Staphylococci, Streptococci, Clostridium perfringens, and Clostridium novi. 
So when the women woke up with wounds in their legs and their temperature was high, it was sometimes the consequence of one of those experiments. Sometimes they endured numerous operations and the experiment could differ each time. Take for instance the story of Barbara Peterczyk. This 16-year-old went through five separate operations which resulted in paralysis of one of her legs. We don't know exactly what happened to her each time, but it's said she underwent bone operations. Simulation of the battlefield, as we said earlier, could include many different types of injuries. One of the most common injuries was getting shot. Bullets pierced through skin, wrecked muscle tissue, destroyed major organs, broke bones, and left infections. That gave a lot of scope to doctors working at the camp. Thankfully for the women, when it was proposed to Dr. Fisher that to better simulate real life the women should be shot, he turned his head up and instead said there must be a better way to simulate injuries. Maybe that's why he wasn't hanged after his trial. He actually became a doctor many years later and died age 90 a free man. At the Nuremberg trial, 16 doctors were found guilty, 7 were executed, while others received lengthy prison sentences. They did stuff like stop blood circulation in the legs by tying off muscles, which led to deaths and severe infections. The doctors later admitted that with some experiments they knew that a number of women would die. It was all for the greater cause, or as many Nazis later said, they were just following orders. Some German soldiers were so badly wounded on the battlefield that they lost limbs, but at times they perhaps needed to borrow tissue or nerves to heal their wounds. That's why the Nazis were interested in bone, muscle, and nerve regeneration and the possibility of bone and limb transplantation. This is why many women woke up with bits of them missing. Some had nerve tissue removed, which was transplanted to another prisoner. At times, the doctors would remove part of the leg, the fibula or tibia, and then they would try to graft that part onto another woman, who now was missing some part of her leg. Muscles were also removed and moved. We'll give you some scientific language now, only because we don't have much medical acumen ourselves. The NIH paper said about muscle experiments, these involved repeated myomectomies, removal of parts of skeletal muscle from the same anatomic locations, so that the legs got thinner and weaker over the course of the experiment. The vast majority of the time, the doctors were working with bone grafts and tissue grafts, but on some occasions they tried to transplant an entire bone. Accounts of this are scant, but it did happen. In one account, Dr. Fisher said, I returned to Hohenlichen as quickly as possible with the bone, which was to be transplanted. In this manner, the period between removal and transplantation was shortened. At Holhenlichen, the bone was handed over to Professor Gebhardt, and he, together with Dr. Stumpfeger, transplanted it. Limbs of women were sometimes amputated, and those limbs were used as, well, spare parts for German soldiers. Dr. Svenka Nedvidova Neidla later testified to this, saying, high amputations were performed. For example, even whole arms with shoulder blade or legs with iliaca were amputated. These operations were performed mostly on insane women who were immediately killed after the operation by a quick injection of Evipan. All specimens gained in operations were carefully wrapped up in sterile gauze and immediately transported to the SS hospital nearby. What's perhaps even worse is this doctor said not all women were taken outside and shot. She said sometimes they were just left on the operating table, the nurses weren't allowed to assist them, and they were not permitted to administer sedatives even against the most intensive post-operational pains. Now we need to hear something from the survivors again. Here is just a snippet from a former inmate named Zofia Sokulska. She talked about the kind of professionalism, or lack thereof, the women endured. She said, Dr. Rosenthal dressed the wounds. He tortured the victims terribly, ripping open the wounds with instruments, vented his sadistic urges, half or completely drunk, flirting simultaneously with Gerda Quernheim, who was assisting him. Not surprisingly, many women died. Kasmira Kurowska died from a tetanus infection. 
Anila Lefanowitz died from an edema malignum bacterial infection, Jadwiga Zhido died from a pyogenic bacterial infection. Stanislava Tchaikovska was subjected to various muscle experiments, but she said surviving the camp itself wasn't easy. Just to give you an idea of life in the camp, she talked about the first few days. She said she and the other women received underwear, belts for our dresses, aprons, and white headscarves. For their first meal, they received two pieces of bread, a bit of sausage, and a spoonful of fat. They got up at four each morning, after which was roll call. They were subsequently sent to work for the day, or as you know, they awaited their doom in the hospital. They usually ate soup and potatoes, although she said on Sundays and holidays they got a special treat of a mug full of coffee or herbal tea, 100 grams of margarine and cheese, or 50 grams of sausage. If they ever got out of line, they were beaten and deprived of any food at all. She said any infraction, even just being accused of not working every second, could result in severe punishment. Sometimes they were incarcerated, but she also said some women were punished by being mauled by a dog. In her own words, she said, If I recall correctly, Josefa or Maria Bednarczyk was on several occasions beaten, battered, taken away to the bunker where she was subjected to various tortures, mauled by a dog, and ultimately finished off. Other women who were severely beaten included Stanislava Shevchik and Hanka Stark, who had an impaired leg ever since. She said these punishments and worse punishments were not meted out by German guards, but by other non-Polish inmates. We're sure you've all heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment. When given free reign, trusty prisoners can be particularly nasty to each other. She said they were worked almost to death, suffering from frostbite in the winter and dehydration in the summer. She said this was deliberate, they were slowly being exterminated, but then came the medical experiments, when they became more useful. Here's how. The following testimony is from Bogomila Bombinska, who was subjected to several different operations. One of them included an attempt to graft bone onto muscle, but her account revealed she endured more than that. She said one day she woke up from an operation and saw this. My right leg was in a plaster cast, and I saw that I had a piece of plaster near my appendix area. This was covered by gauze held in place by sticking plaster. The dressing was not tight, so I drew it aside and saw that my stomach had been cut open and sewn up in this area. She was given morphine on a daily basis. The wounds were also washed daily, although with petrol. She said sometimes she and others would hide the newer bandages. She explained that this was because they were at a premium. She said had they noticed that we had fresh bandages, there would have been a tremendous row. It was often the case that the visiting doctors were drunk. After weeks of pain, a high temperature, pus leakage, and the inability to walk, she finally felt better again. A female prisoner, who was also a doctor, inspected her wounds. She informed Bombinska that some of her nerves had been cut. Like the other women, Bombinska fought not to be operated on again. She said if that meant execution, then so be it. For that, she was locked up with the others. She testified, once again we declared that we would not go for an operation. The door to our cell was closed, leaving us locked inside. They weren't fed for three days after. She said one day something unusual happened. She managed to find a German newspaper, Josef Goebbels' propaganda rag, the Das Reich. It was dated August or July 30, 1943. She said there was an article that described the extraordinary achievements of German scientists in the field of surgery. Shocked and sad, knowing she'd seen friends die and some rendered disabled, she read about how scientists had made extraordinary breakthroughs in bone transplantation, muscle and skin grafts, and more. In her own words, she testified, there was no indication of where the experiments had been conducted. A young Polish man named Simon Rosenkier has seen things a young man should never have seen. In the concentration camp where he's imprisoned, he witnessed Dr. Joseph Mengele conduct a cold experiment on a Jewish man. The man did not survive his bath of ice. On another day in the camp, he saw the aftermath of what happens when doctors remove the hump from a hunchback. 
Rosenkir could not believe what he was seeing, but something he saw on many occasions was the Nazi sterilization experiments. These programs encompassed hundreds and thousands of people, some of whom were subjected to powerful x-rays in their genital regions, and then they came for him. Rosenkir was brought to the clinic one day and told he was going to have vitamin supplements injected into him. When he asked one of the doctors what the reason was, he got the response these shots will give you muscles to work. The doctor then gave him a mean look and added, do you understand that, you red-headed dog? It seems the doctor did not like Rosenkir's hair color. Perhaps it was thought to be a Jewish trait for some people in Germany. Maybe Ginger wasn't seen as Aryan enough, although that's disputable. Rosenkir survived the camp and that's how we know about his story. In the 1950s, he and his wife tried to have a child. They couldn't and they soon found out that he was sterile. Many years later, he filed a lawsuit against the German pharmaceutical companies Bayer and Schering. The lawsuit accused them of supplying drugs to the Nazis for sterilizations. What they did to me is beyond right and wrong, Rosenkir told the New York Times in 2003. He might have survived the Holocaust, but his parents and four siblings did not. To understand the Nazi sterilization experiments, we have to look at what happened before the war. In 1933, the law for the prevention of hereditarily diseased offspring was passed. This meant that if the Genetic Health Court said a citizen had some kind of genetic disorder, by law they should be forcefully sterilized. It was actually similar to the USA's Virginia Sterilization Act of 1924, which ruled forceful sterilization was lawful on people afflicted with hereditary forms of insanity that are recurrent, idiocy, imbecility, feeble-mindedness, or epilepsy. This hasn't been a good look for the US since it was later said the program targeted minorities. The New Yorker wrote the story in 2018, How American Racism Influenced Hitler. Anyway, moving on, the German law covered many people including the blind, the deaf, and even folks suffering from alcoholism. Then in 1935, after some amendments were made, it included Afro-Germans whom the Nazis referred to as Rhineland Bastarde. Adolf Hitler often talked about what he considered contamination of German blood. As you'll see today, this is why the Nazis went to great lengths to stop many people from having children. Now let's look at a letter that was written by SS Oberfuhrer Brock and addressed to Reichsfuhrer SS Himmler. The date on the letter is June 23, 1942. This is how it starts. According to my impression, there are at least 2-3 to three million men and women well fit for work among the approximately 10 million European Jews. In consideration of the exceptional difficulties posed for us by the question of labor, I am of the opinion that these 2-3 to three million should in any case be taken out and kept alive. Brock said that it goes without saying those who are kept alive should not be able to procreate, but he added it was too expensive to sterilize people like they'd been doing for years to folks whom the Nazis said had genetic defects. He wrote castration by means of x-rays, however, is not only relatively cheap but can be carried out on many thousands in a very short time. Himmler wrote back, saying, I am positively interested in seeing the sterilization by x-rays tried out at least once in one camp in a series of experiments. Soon after, a memorandum was written. It contained this paragraph. The Reich leader SS has promised Brigade Führer Professor Klauberg that Auschwitz concentration camp will be at his disposal for his experiments on human beings and animals. By means of some fundamental experiments, a method should be found which would lead to sterilization of persons without their knowledge. On June 7, 1943, Professor Karl Klauberg wrote to Himmler, providing what he considered some good news. In the second paragraph, he wrote, The method I contrived to achieve the sterilization of the female organism without operation is as good as perfected. He meant, of course, that it worked, but his technique was barbaric. We now know that he took women from the camps and told them that he was going to give them a routine gynecological examination. He would first check to see if the fallopian tubes were open and then he would inject a chemical irritant. This would cause swelling and in time the tubes would grow together, thereby blocking them. 
This swelling could lead to something called peritonitis, which every medical resource on the web says if left untreated can infect the blood and cause death by sepsis. It can also infect the organs and lead to multiple organ failure and death. A website dedicated to the prisoners of Auschwitz wrote, while some of Klauberg's Jewish patients died in this way, others were deliberately put to death so that autopsies could be carried out. It's said Klauberg sterilized 700 women this way, with many or most of them suffering permanent damage to their organs if they survived. The number is just an estimate, with some sources saying the number was much higher. As well as Jewish women, Romani women were victims of Klauberg's sterilization. After performing these simple but totally unethical procedures, Klauberg concluded in a letter to Himmler, one adequately trained physician in one adequately equipped place with perhaps 10 assistants, the number of assistants in conformity with the speed desired, will most likely be able to deal with several hundred if not even 1,000 per day. Another man who sent and received letters talking about sterilization was Horst Schumann. He sometimes worked alone and sometimes with Dr. Klauberg. We'll let the New York Times introduce him to you. On September 24, 1970, the newspaper wrote this in its lead. Dr. Horst Schumann, a Nazi concentration camp doctor, went on trial in Frankfurt today, charged with the killing of 14,549 mental patients under Hitler's so-called euthanasia program. Before we talk about his sterilization techniques, we should tell you a little about the Action T4 program. The Nazis believed that some mentally ill people were uncurable. Therefore, it was agreed that they should be subjected to involuntary euthanasia, which basically meant killing someone. Adolf Hitler referred to this as a mercy death. Hitler wrote that some mentally ill people were beyond help. He said some of them bedded on sawdust or sand, and perpetually dirtied themselves. He said some of them even put their own excrement into their mouths. This, of course, was a massive exaggeration and also a dangerous one. It did not reflect at all on mentally disabled people nor the physically disabled. The mass culling wasn't about mercy at all. It was about the Nazis' obsession with a master race and also about freeing up hospital beds and having fewer mouths to feed. It meant people who were sick, young, old, male, female, in Germany, Poland, and other European nations were put down like animals. It's thought 300,000 people were killed in total. Horst Schumann was one of the many people involved in the program, but he's also notorious for his sterilization techniques. One of them was sterilization by radiation. In 1942, he set up a radiation station at the women's hospital in the Auschwitz camp. There, both men and women were told they were going to have an x-ray, although they were not informed why. Reports say they usually stood 5 to 8 minutes where the machine was pointed at the genital area. The process would sometimes cause radiation burns to the genital area and other parts of the body. At times, they would have surgery after to remove a woman's ovaries or a man's genitals. Some of them died, while the survivors, if unfit for work, would also usually be killed soon after. According to one report, roughly 1,000 male and female prisoners were subjected to x-ray sterilization, with about 200 of them undergoing follow-up extractive surgery. Another man who performed x-ray sterilizations was Victor Brock. Remember, he's one of those guys whose letters to Himmler survived. They were used against him when he stood trial. In one letter translated from German, Brock says a high enough dosage of radiation can make a man or woman sterile. He wrote, castration with all its consequences will occur, since high x-ray dosages destroy the internal secretion of the ovary or of the testicles respectively. Lower dosages would only temporarily paralyze the procreative capacity. He wrote that men needed to be hit with 500 to 600 R and women 300 to 350 R each for about two minutes. He said that there was a problem though in that the high dose would cause them burns. Remember that the victims were not supposed to know what was happening to them, so the burns obviously gave it away. The Nazis did not want their enslaved workers to know just how awful things were for them in this respect. 
Brock wrote that he had one way to deal with the problem. He said they should let the person to be treated approach a counter where they could be asked to answer some questions or fill in forms, which would take them two to three minutes. The person behind the counter was actually the operator of the radiation machine. He or she would switch it on when the victim was filling in these questions. Brock said he believed one such installation could sterilize 150 to 200 people per day, but with 20 installations that would be 3,000 to 4,000 per day. The victims would not know what happened to them, at least at the time. Although Brock wrote in another letter that in all likelihood the victims would sooner or later realize with certainty that they'd been sterilized or castrated by x-rays. During the Nuremberg trials, Brock was asked, you were very interested in the question whether the people going to be sterilized would know whether they are sterilized or not, would gain knowledge of this procedure, is that correct? He replied, no, that was Himmler's wish. It seems that Brock had to concede back in the day that it was just not possible to perform the secret x-rays without the person finding out at some point what had happened to them. There are, of course, many survivors of the forced sterilizations, like the man we mentioned at the start of the show. One very outspoken survivor is Clara Nowak, who became a nurse in Germany after the war. She was also the activist behind the League of Victims of Compulsory Sterilization and Euthanasia. In 1991, she was asked how being sterilized had affected her later in life. She said, I still have many complaints as a result of it. There were complications with every operation I've had since. I've had to take early retirement at the age of 52, and the psychological pressure has always remained. On top of that, she said it had hurt all her life to see her friends and neighbors talking about their kids and grandkids when the Nazis had ensured this could never happen to her. She said her union had 88,000 people in it who had suffered from the sterilization and attempted euthanasia. Another victim was the writer and sculptor Dorothea Buck. In 2019, she died aged 102. But many, many years before, when she was just 19, she became a victim of Nazi sterilization. She was the daughter of a German pastor, and while the Nazis didn't deem her to be essentially non-German, she had a breakdown in her teens when she heard about the advent of another war. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia. In an asylum, she was treated to what we now call torture, although back then, doctors said they were curative measures. This included drenching her daily with ice-cold water as if that would suddenly make her better. One day she woke up with a scar on her abdomen, which she and her parents were told was from an appendectomy. She actually still had her appendix. The doctors had cut into her and sterilized her. This was terrible, but she could so easily have been a victim of euthanasia. Ima Spaniard also survived. She talked with the BBC in 2005 when she was aged 80. She said, with little food and hard work, it was hard to survive for long in the camp. In her own words, she said, Auschwitz was an enormous terrain, 40 kilometers on the ground. So you had to work there, building roads or barracks. To do that for 10 hours a day and stand up for an hour in the morning and in the evening, especially with the kind of food we ate, made it impossible to survive for longer than a few weeks. She said she met many girls who were sterilized at her camp. She called them beautiful young Greek girls, virgins, whose ovaries were x-rayed. She said they all suffered burns, and she was the nurse who treated those burns. Some of them died from their injuries, especially when radiation treatment was exchanged for chemicals being injected into their ovaries. She told the BBC around 80 women were operated on like this. I remember them well because I was told to administer their anesthetic. At that moment, I was not so afraid to do this, but later on, after the war ended, I thought to myself, what have I done? It's now believed anywhere from 300,000 to 450,000 people were sterilized by the Nazis from 1933 to 1945, although we can't be sure just how many people survived and how many died. Now you need to watch the World War II Nazi breeding plan or have a look at the Nazi House of Shutters. Former Luftwaffe pilot, now SS doctor Sigmund Rascher chooses two prisoners from the lineup. Russian men barely out of their teens. These strong men have no idea they're about to become test subjects in Rasher's profoundly unethical medical experiment 
bearing the innocuous title, warming up after freezing to the danger point. A few hours later, Rasher jots down in his notebook, subject 115763 naked, time of death 64 minutes, subject 115306 clothed, time of death 102 minutes. This was not unusual. Those that underwent the Nazis' freezing experiments rarely escaped with their life intact. We know a little bit about the experiments of a Dr. Rasher due to the fact that many of the letters the Nazis wrote while they were experimenting on prisoners were later used in evidence during the Nuremberg trials. Take for instance this letter dated October 9, 1942. The correspondence is between Rasher and Heinrich Himmler, the Reichsfuhrer SS. After Adolf Hitler, Himmler was the most powerful Nazi that ever shouted Sieg Heil. The letter starts with, I ask for leave to submit to you the second interim report concerning the freezing experiments. Interestingly, lower down he also wrote that Professor Holzlohner declined to perform the freezing experiments on humans out of shame. Rasher then added, I shall take over the exploitation of them, meaning the humans. It seems not all Nazi doctors were happy about experimenting on humans. In the testimony of SS officer Rudolf Brandt, he talks about Himmler, stating, he further asked Rasher to submit the names of the people who were opposed to experiments on human beings and stated that such peoples were to be considered traitors. Still, if there were such traitors, they were in a very small minority. They did exist though, with Himmler writing to Rasher in one letter, I regard those people as high and national traitors who still today reject these experiments on humans and would instead let sturdy German soldiers die as a result of these cooling methods. I shall not hesitate to report these men. Such was the mindset of the inner circle of Nazis. Being outside all day during the winter in some parts of the world could easily be lethal. Ending up in the bitterly cold waters could be lethal much faster. The Germans wanted to know how to treat their soldiers when they were suffering from hypothermia. These experiments happened at the Dachau camp from August 1942 to May 1943. They consisted of freezing a person to the point of death, although sometimes that part did end in death. This was useful information for the Nazis since such experiments gave them an idea of what a person could survive. Another part of the experiment was called warming up, in which the doctors used various methods to warm someone so they didn't just survive but were brought back to good health. It was almost as if the Nazis were playing God, trying to resurrect people from what looked like certain death. What's also interesting is that there seemed to be some competition going on between various doctors with some medical personnel expressing that experimenting on humans wasn't necessary when animals could be used. In some cases, shaved cats. Rasher told Himmler that humans were indeed better, saying in one letter that he needed more Russians. You might wonder why Russians. The answer was the Germans had to fight on the Eastern Front, where temperatures could get very low. The Germans weren't used to this. The Nazis wondered if the Russians had a genetic advantage when it came to surviving the cold. And if they did, they wanted to know why. Further down the letter, he wrote, The experiments of rewarming by body heat, which were ordered, will be carried out as soon as the women necessary for this experiment arrive, in about two days. I shall report the results of this experiment separately. That didn't mean that Rasher was now freezing only women, but that he was addressing Himmler's contention that the best way to warm up a freezing man was to place him between the bodies of two women. It was Himmler's contention that animal warmth, in this case human warmth, was better than artificial warmth. He told Rasher that a fisherwoman could take her half-frozen husband into bed and revive him in that manner. This was actual testimony from a former Nazi during the Nuremberg trials. The man who said the words was again Rudolf Brandt. The report on the rewarming of an intensely chilled human being by animal warmth stated that the experimental subjects were cooled until they all lost consciousness. The test persons were then placed between two naked women in a spacious bed. 
it was noted that several of the subjects revived sufficiently to perform sexual intercourse. These experiments were supposed to emulate what it would be like when one of their pilots was shot down and ended up in the frigid North Sea. To replicate this, sometimes prisoners were dropped into a bath of ice-cold water. According to researchers, some of them were anesthetized and others weren't. Although we said that Professor Holzlerner might have felt some amount of shame regarding the human experiments, we found a report with his name attached to it that beggars belief. The other names were Rasher and Dr. Finca. The letter concerned giving narcotics to a person before they were forced into the ice bath. It started, if the experimental subject was placed in the water under narcosis, one observed a certain arousing effect. The subject began to groan and made some defensive movements. In a few cases, the state of excitation developed. This was especially severe in the cooling of head and neck. The report said that the person then suffered from a kind of rigor, after which the subject started twitching. The report concluded, with still more marked sinking of body temperature, it suddenly ceased. These cases ended fatally without any successful results from resuscitation efforts. Some subjects were naked, but others were fully dressed, usually in German Air Force uniforms to create a facsimile of natural conditions. Rasher's letters illuminate the details. He wrote in one report, The experimental subjects were placed in water, dressed in complete flying uniform, winter or summer combination, and with an aviator's helmet. A life jacket made out of rubber kapok was to prevent submerging. In one experimental series, the occiput, or brainstem, protruded above the water, while in another series of experiments, the occiput, brainstem, and back of the head were submerged in the water. We'll come back to why he didn't always fully submerge the person. The doctors checked the person's body temperature throughout and also wrote down obvious clinical manifestations, which in simple terms just means the outward signs of what happened to the freezing person. They also checked for biochemical and physiologic changes, which again relate to the changes in the body. If the person died, an autopsy would reveal more information. So, there was Dr. Rasher, thinking he was doing his bit for the cause. During the Nuremberg trials, his experiments were called inhumane and criminal. And of course, they were. But what's also so strange about the man is he lied when he wrote down the findings of his experiments, or at least he lied from time to time. This didn't help the cause at all. It's now said that Rasher was operating under the orders of another person. That was Eric Hipka, the chief medical officer of the Luftwaffe. Together, they came up with the ice-cold water experiments, and they also left some prisoners outside in the cold during the winter months at Dachau, usually naked. The reports we have now state that when left outside, they were usually there for around 14 hours. As for the tub of ice, that could be up to three hours, although most people died well before that. The prisoners were usually male, but of various nationalities and ethnicities. We can't always be sure who was part of the experiments because the Nazis destroyed much of the evidence when the war was lost. But thanks to those letters, as well as a 228-page report from the investigator, Leo Alexander, we know some things. We know that the prisoners were forced to do the experiment most of the time, but sometimes they volunteered on the promise that they'd be awarded for their participation. It's reported that those rewards weren't given if the person survived. In total, there were between 360 to 400 experiments, which amounted to between 280 and 300 victims. The temperature of the bath that people were dropped into was sometimes between 2 and 12 degrees Celsius. During the winter, the North Sea's temperature is usually about 6 degrees Celsius. As for hypothermia, that occurs when the temperature of the body drops below 95 degrees Fahrenheit. So if a person sits in a bath of water that's around 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, very serious injury and death can happen pretty fast, within possibly 30 to 90 minutes or around the 1 to 3 hour mark, depending on various factors. It's these factors that the Nazis wanted to understand. 
In some of the reports, the Nazis wrote that when a person was immersed in water that was 5 degrees Celsius, they could generally tolerate it for about one hour. If the water was 15 degrees Celsius, they would usually last about four or five hours. One report said that no test subjects survived having their body temperature dropped to 25 degrees Celsius and then being heated up to 28 degrees Celsius. Some prisoners who later testified to seeing the experiment said they saw around 90 people die, but noted that some did survive after being warmed up. They also said two people became mentally ill, but we don't know when this mental illness occurred. The onset of severe reactions to the cold was fast, as was stated in another report. It said the rapidity of which numbness occurs is remarkable. It was determined that already 5 to 10 minutes after falling in, an advanced rigor of the skeletal muscle sets in, which renders the movement of the arms especially increasingly difficult. That report also said that these considerations had to be taken seriously given that German soldiers in cold water would likely lose most of their manual dexterity. The report noted it is certainly extremely difficult even at the beginning of numbness to climb onto a rubber raft, to blow up a rubber raft for one person, or to make use of instruments or to signal or call. One of the ways the Nazis warmed prisoners up was by immersing them in hot water, but that was too very dangerous. It produces a kind of shock, what we now call rewarming shock or the afterdrop effect. You can look at any medical website these days and it will tell you that if you're dealing with a person suffering from hypothermia, do not put them in a hot bath, instead passively warm them using dry, unheated blankets. Dr. Rasher disagreed with this, stating that passive rewarming didn't work. He wrote in one report, Rewarming by animal warmth, animal bodies or women's bodies would be too slow. He explained this by saying, during attempts to save severely chilled persons, it was shown that rapid rewarming was in all cases preferable to slow rewarming because after removal from the cold water, the body temperature continued to drop rapidly. According to research, the Nazis used at least seven different procedures to warm a person. We know that in two experiments a warm bath was used although some witnesses later said they saw someone being immersed into boiling hot water. We also know that massage was used in some experiments, as were heated light sources. But again, there isn't much data as to how they worked. We should say here that in Rasher's reports there are a lot of inconsistencies, which is one reason why things didn't end too well for that guy. Rasher's report also stated heart failure was the reason for freezing experiment deaths, but that's also come into question as has his conviction that if a person is not immersed above the neck, he won't become hypothermic. Academics now state that Rasher was not even qualified to conduct such experiments, which is why it seems they were either botched or the results were made up or exaggerated. One scientist later wrote, The Reichsfuhrer expressed special interest in the hypothermia project and traveled to Dachau several times to witness experiments. Thus, the study represents a private venture by two unqualified ideologues, conducted in a prison setting quite alien to the standards of academic environment. We now know that because Rasher was so close to Himmler, no other scientists dare question what he did even though they knew full well he was somewhat of a charlatan. At the Nuremberg trials, it was said that their connections were so strong that practically every superior trembled in fear of intriguing Rasher, who consequently held a position of enormous power. When you hear this next bit of information, you'll agree that he certainly fitted the glove of what we call mad scientist. With so many dead bodies around him, Rasher made use of some of the human skin. With it, he created saddles, riding breeches, ladies' handbags, and other personal items. He sold what he made to some of his colleagues. But his end would come when it was discovered that some of his children weren't his and he actually abducted them. He was also accused of killing his lab assistant and of being a scientific fraud. 
For these reasons, he ended up in Dachau himself. Himmler felt this guy he'd protected and supported for so long had not only lied to him, but made him a fool. On Himmler's orders on the 26th of April 1945, Rasher was killed by firing squad in his cell. The last words that Rasher heard were, you pig, now you've got the punishment you deserve. Well, that's if he lived long enough to hear them. In the 1980s, some scientists said the data might be useful to help save lives. Baruch Hohen, a Holocaust researcher, had something to say about that. He said, although use of Nazi data might benefit some lives, a larger bioethical problem arises. By conferring a scientific martyrdom on the victims, it would tend to make them our retrospective guinea pigs, and we their retrospective torturers. For some time, it was assumed that Rasher's experiments could be of some use, but academics were quick to state that there was great risk thinking these grotesque Nazi medical exercises yielded results worthy of consideration and possibly of benefit to humanity. It's thought the number of victims was around 27,000 for all the various experiments, with about twice as many men as women. About 20% of the victims were Jewish, with about 2% being Roma and Sinti. Other ethnicities were stated as other or unknown. When we look at the nationalities, there were many. The countries with the most victims of experiments were Germany, Poland, Russia, Hungary, and Austria, although over 6,000 cases were marked as unknown nationality. There were some countries' residents picked out for lesser-known experiments, such as a handful of British commandos who were captured in Norway. The Nazis tested new kinds of amphetamines on them in high-performance experiments. A German soldier sits in a muddy trench hoping for a hiatus in what's been constant shelling for hours. Unbeknownst to him, noxious gas wafting over no man's land will be over him soon. These so-called king of battle gases is about to change his life forever. Some years later, the Nazis didn't want to see a repeat of this. All sides during the First World War used mustard gas. It was potent and very effective in hurting your enemy, even when gas masks were worn. When they weren't being worn, soldiers would sometimes report smelling burned garlic or rubber or even dead horses. That's when they knew they were in trouble. The gas was also said to smell like horseradish, hence why it got the name mustard gas. You might have thought until now that soldiers were throwing pots of spicy Hellman's mustard at each other, but the gas was actually a bunch of pernicious chemical compounds, not a delicious condiment. If inhaled in vast quantities, the soldier was always going to have a very bad day. The effects of the gas were not immediate, but if breathed in, there was no way out. At first, the victim's eyes would tear. This would intensify until it became very painful, sometimes leading to temporary blindness. Make no mistake, mustard gas could kill, but in warfare, almost blinding a complete regiment was certainly a way to get ahead. It also produced blisters on a soldier's skin, which weren't just irritable. They often popped and turned into oozing wounds, therefore putting the soldier at risk of getting a dangerous infection. If that wasn't bad enough, there were long-term effects of exposure. One of them was cancer. It was hard to get away from the stuff since it stuck to clothes. A soldier's body could then be severely burned bad enough to cause immense pain, disfigurement, and over time death. This is how a wartime British nurse explained treating soldiers injured by mustard gas. They cannot be bandaged or touched. We cover them with a tent of propped up sheets. Gas burns must be agonizing because usually the other cases do not complain, even with the worst wounds, but gas cases are invariably beyond endurance and they cannot help crying out. Bear in mind, we're about to tell you how the Nazis used this gas on prisoners. There were other milder long-term effects too. As the British soldier Cecil Withers explained after the war, I suffer badly from phlegm and from coughs and colds a lot. That all started when the British were shelling hard at the last Battle of Soma. One of the shells distributed the residue of mustard gas that had been lying there for months. They talk about secondary smoking, I got secondary gas. Mustard gas didn't just blister the skin, it also blistered the lungs. 
In a bad case, the end result was pulmonary edema and sometimes death. In fact, just to give you a better idea of how dangerous this stuff was, making the shells in factories injured and killed people in Germany, Britain, France, and the US, the country that ended up making the most mustard gas weapons. One paper we found on this topic said, the most dangerous job regardless of location involved filling artillery gas shells. This produced even more injuries than normal chemical production and German workers suffered as much as British, French, and American workers. As you can see, mustard gas was a useful weapon, albeit some folks thought it was unethical. Others said, hey, if you can blow a man's head off and shove a bayonet through his heart, why can't you kill him slowly with gas? The typical British response to mustard gas must have been, it's just not cricket, meaning it's not how things were done. Obviously, supporters of the gas likely never went within 100 miles of a trench. Mustard gas was first used by German troops on July 12, 1917, near Ypres, Belgium. The victims of the gas were British and Canadian soldiers. Chemical weapons were nothing new at the time, all sides were using them, but it was the Germans that got ahead with the king of battle gases. US soldiers also suffered once they were in the war in 1917. Harry L. Gilchrist, medical director of the gas service, US Army Expeditionary Force, wrote about what happened to some US troops hit with the gas. He said, at first the troops didn't notice the gas and were not uncomfortable. But in the course of an hour or so, there was marked inflammation in their eyes. They vomited. Later, there was severe blistering of the skin, especially where the uniform had been contaminated. The men were virtually blind and had to be led about. On top of that, not knowing when some gas would waft into them really messed up soldiers' minds. Many suffered from kinds of PTSD called gas fright. By the time the war had finished, untold numbers of men suffered from psychological conditions. While only around 90,000 men died from chemical agents, about 1.3 million suffered gas injuries. Okay, so you don't need much more convincing that mustard gas was a formidable weapon that not only set back an army but also ruined a man's life. That's why the Germans were so dead set on trying to create something to protect their soldiers during the next war. But as you know, the Nazis didn't exactly wait for the German equivalent of FDA approval before using an agent. They also didn't have too many scruples about human testing during experimental trials. That's because they had concentration camps full of people they deemed enemies and generally just inferior to their master race. These people they thought were entirely expendable. They could be tested on, pulled apart, frozen, and when they did, they were useful for autopsy purposes. As always, years later, when it came to experimentation, everything had to go through Adolf Hitler's number one man, the guy said to be the architect of the Holocaust, Heinrich Himmler. Some of the letters written to him were discovered after the Nazis were beaten. We found one written by Ernst Robert Grawitz, a physician to Hitler, and before that, someone who was part of Nazis' mass euthanasia program. He also took part in experiments in which he tried to cure homosexuality. In the letter, he talked about experimenting with the end substance. This referred to chlorine gas, not mustard gas, which was very useful during the previous war, albeit not too effective when the enemy donned its gas masks. This is part of the original letter in translation. In accordance with these investigation experiments carried out on the 25th of September 1944, the necessity has now arisen to carry out several experiments on human beings for the final clarification of the physiological effect of end substance on and through human skin. He asked for five prisoners, stating that it was improbable that the experiment will cause any permanent damage. The Nazis maimed and killed many people in various experiments, so we don't know why exactly Grawitz stated that part. We do know such experiments were kept secret as much as possible from the people in the camps, and we also know that injured persons did not make good workers. We found another letter written by Grawitz again to Himmler, but this time about something called the Lost Program. Lost was a kind of sulfur gas. It got the name from two people that invented it, Wilhelm Lemmel and Wilhelm Steinhaus. 
The prisoners had already been purposefully injured by the gas, and the experiment consisted of trying to treat them, just as any German soldier would require medical help on the battlefield. The letter states, the persons experimented on suffered considerably under the wound caused by lost. The arms in most of the cases are badly swollen and the pains are enormous. In four cases, the wounds became infected. We then find out that Drug H did nothing to help the specific wounds caused by Lost. Drug H was otherwise known as the Holzman remedy. The emphasis when using Lost was usually to burn the prisoner with the stuff until the horrible blisters formed. The Nazis then treated the burns with various drugs. Evidence tells us this happened at Sachsenhausen camp in 1939, at Natzweiler camp from 1942 to 1944, and at Neuengamme camp only in 1944. Also, as you already know, just making the shells that carried the gas was dangerous business, so the Nazis of course sometimes used camp inmates to do just that. On September 8, 1939, Polish troops hit German troops with mustard gas after blowing up a bridge at a place called Jaslo. Fourteen German soldiers were injured and two died. According to one researcher, the incident immediately led to an investigation by German chemical warfare experts. The Nazis were somewhat upset, so they took 31 prisoners and experimented on them. They did this at Sachsenhausen camp, which was mainly used for German political prisoners and Soviet prisoners. But other nationalities stayed and died there too. About 12,000 men died there from malnutrition and disease. Others were just shot or died in experiments. We know the prisoners suffering from mustard gas experiments were treated with the experimental drug Freskin, a powder codenamed F1000 and F1001. We also know various ointments were used for their infections. What we don't know is what happened to most of these guinea pigs. One survivor tells a story, though. He was Hans Kargel, a German political prisoner. Kargel was a prominent anti-fascist in Germany, and so the Nazis convicted him of high treason and labeled him as an enemy of Hitler. He later wrote that at the camp he had a yellow liquid pasted over his arms. This was a liquid form of mustard gas. He said he came out in painful blisters which then became open wounds. He was then treated with two ointments, which caused intense pain. The Nazi doctors recorded the healing process with photographs and film. Later, another eight prisoners suffered a similar fate, but two of them had Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, and Pneumococcus bacteria rubbed into the open wounds. This is what a researcher wrote about that. The infected prisoners developed sepsis with high temperatures, shivering, swelling of the glands, and enlarged spleens. The prisoners' suffering led to the insight that neither Holzman's remedy nor the Freskin powder had any healing effect on the mustard gas wounds or the infections. Okay, so the experiment failed. The Nazis tried again, of course. They also performed more experiments with the substance lost. One gram of it was smeared under the arms of several prisoners. So much of it was applied to them that their wounds became necrotic, although it seems the Nazis were able to treat those. Later at the Natzweiler camp, things went a little different. Lost was still applied to prisoners, but now a Dr. August Hurt treated the prisoners by giving them injections of vitamins. He's better known for his Jewish skeleton collection experiments. He also stood out having severe facial injuries from fighting in the first war. On November 25, 1942, 15 inmates were picked out for testing. It turns out that the earlier tests done on animals were not applicable to humans. The application for vitamin A had worked on rats, but in humans it actually made the wounds worse. Then they conducted what they called a major rat experiment using 1,000 rats and four different vitamins. Humans came next, 15 of them. They were all German political prisoners, according to Hendrik Nails, a former Dutch inmate. All suffered terrible festering wounds over their entire bodies. 
Some of them went blind, three died in horrible pain just after, and two more died within a few days. The reason for death was edema of the lungs or pneumonia. Hurt then wrote up his report stating that vitamins A, B complex, and C by mouth seemed to work as did vitamin B1 when injected with glucose. What he totally left out of the report were the severe injuries, the extreme pain, and the deaths. The Nazis also experimented with phosgene gas, which is similar to mustard gas. In June 1943, up to 150 prisoners at Natzweiler camp were dosed with some of this thin gas, and around 50 of them suffocated in agony, although apparently scholars debate this today. More experiments happened, often using German prisoners, but also gypsy prisoners taken from another camp. They were gassed, and then doctors gave them a drug called Eurotropin orally, while others got nothing and some received injections of Eurotropin. A survivor named Willy Hertzberg said he and others were led to the gas chamber where a Nazi doctor threw vials on the floor and smashed them with his feet. He then walked out and the doors were locked. In about 10 minutes, Hertzberg said that all he could hear was muffled splashing caused by what he assumed was bursting lungs. He said prisoners were on all fours, writhing around with foam coming out of their mouths. As for himself, he said the pain was as if someone was sticking needles into his lungs. He said on his chest he felt a pressure, as if hundreds of kilos were put upon it. Fourteen people suffered pulmonary edema, four German gypsy inmates died, they were Zirko Rebstock, 37, Adalbert Eckstein, 20, Andreas Holdowski, 32, and Joseph Reinhardt, 38. As terrible as it was, it was a result for the Nazis who worked out just how much Eurotropin could be used to limit the effects of usually lethal phosgene poisoning. We now come to the last experiments. These were conducted by Ludwig Werner Haas at the Neuengamme camp. He was trying to develop a drug that would help German soldiers who'd been poisoned with the blister agent Lewisite. It also caused terrible burns that festered and got infected, but if soldiers swallowed the stuff, which was very possible, they could be looking at severe internal tissue damage after painful bouts of vomiting. Haas wrote to Himmler and Himmler gave him the green light to start testing on prisoners. Notably, Haas was one of Hitler's favorite physicians. Haas believed that adding hypochlorous acid to water could have a positive effect on men poisoned with lewisite. First, he had to see what happened when men drank water with hypochlorous acid in it. He had the water supply contaminated and 10,000 prisoners drank the water. They were all okay. This was progress. So then the doctor and his associates took 150 men and laced their water with lewisite. They drank that and then had to drink water with hypochlorous acid in it to see if it affected their perhaps rapidly declining health. Other experiments used nitrogen mustard as the poison. According to research, low doses of these poisons in the water didn't seem to damage the unwitting prisoners. Haas then said he wanted to give the prisoners high, harmful doses and others smaller doses to work out the right amount of hypochlorous acid to put in the water. To this, Himmler actually said no. His reason was the current situation. That was the advancing Allied troops in Germany soon to lose the war. And that just about covers the chemical agent experiments at the camps. Now you need to watch Deadliest Chemical Weapons in the World, or have a look at weapons even the military made illegal.